Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey, welcome to Dose of Leadership. So happy you're tuning in. Man, what a fantastic guest today. I got General Stanley McChrystal on the show talking about his new book, Risk, A User's Guide. Look, today's world is rife with risk, be it the global pandemic that we've all been through or the steady churn of uncertainty that permeates both business and life. We struggle to respond, right? And so retired four-star General, General, General Stanley McChrystal, who's on the show today, the best-selling author of my share of the task, Team of Teams. We had Chris Fussell on the show talking about that a few years ago. And leaders bring us an entirely new way to understand risk and master the unknown. That's what this conversation is all about. We talk about their new book, Risk, co-authored with uh, Amy, Anna Butricchio. And they argue that we must develop both an interface for dealing with risk and an appetite for action. I couldn't agree more. It's just, This book is, is great. I love how he writes it's easy to understand. It's a systematic approach to, to detecting and responding to risk. And it builds on t- 10 key dimensions of control, what he calls risk control factors, which we touch on on some of them here. And these control factors, you can be leveraged and adjusted in real time to forge an effective path forward. And we talk about this risk immune system. I love his approach to that. You know, so many times you've heard me talk about on the show that. You know, when I worked in corporate arena, I saw so many times it's about detailed planning and coming up with the best plan so we can avert risk. Well, it's just not realistic. And so what uh, Stan McChrystal talks about is this building and maintaining a healthy risk immune system, which allows us to detect threats, assess the risk, and then respond. To me, it's about being the composed force in the chaotic situation. That is having a healthy risk assessment or being risk fit, as Stan talks about in his book. So I love this book. I love this concept. We talk about COVID-19. We talk about the current kind of debacle in Afghanistan. It's relevant to what we've all lived through here and seen on the news. It's a really great, fun conversation. Great 45 minutes to spend with Stan McChrystal. So excited to talk to him. Hey, this episode is brought to you by my brand new sponsor, Awesome Broso Tequila. If you haven't checked out the episode with uh, Ricardo Gamara, please check it out. So excited that he's a fan of the show. After our conversation, he loved the show so much. He loved our conversation. He wanted to be a sponsor, and I couldn't be more thrilled. And he sent me some of this tequila. And I got to tell you, Awesome Broso is one of the best tequilas I have ever had. It is crazy good, guys. And I'm not a big drinker. I am not. I don't like the taste of alcohol, but I love this tequila. It's a great sipping tequila. I know you probably all have bad experiences with tequila or Jose Cuervo or something like that, and it steers you away from it. I'm telling you, if you're looking for something that's easy to sip, if you're looking for that perfect, unique gift, check out Awesome Broso Tequila. When I first tasted this tequila, it literally blew my mind, especially the Gran Reserva Ulta Añejo. Man, this tequila is insanely smooth with hints of caramel and butterscotch. It is so good. All the friends I've given it to and my wife, they go nuts when I pour them a shot. It's so good. The best part is that Awesome Broso makes it easy to purchase by the bottle by shipping it direct to you. Don't have to go to the liquor store. Go to atequila.com. That's A, the letter A, tequila.com, and use the code LEGEND at checkout. You'll get 10% off your first order. It's so good, guys. Check them out. Awesome Broso Tequila. Hey, thanks for being a supporter of the show. And just a simple reminder, if you're finding value in Dose of Leadership, 
Take the time to follow me on your favorite podcast application and take the time to write a five-star review if you find some value in the show. I really appreciate it. Any reviews, fine. I take them all. Hey, if you're finding some value. And reach out to me at richard at doseofleadership.com. Let's get on with this conversation. Stan McChrystal here on Dose of Leadership. All right, Stan McChrystal on Dose of Leadership. Welcome to the show, General. Rich, thanks for having me. And call me Stan, please. Sure. Stan, it was... It's a long time I've been wanting to talk to you on the show, so it was exciting to see that you had a new book coming out called Risk. And, you know, one of the things that I've I've come to learn, we were talking a little bit before the show about like kind of the lessons I learned from being an officer in the military, and that was one of them, that, that fear and uncertainty is how I like to phrase it, never really goes away. And I thought, the, the, for me, the measure of success, particularly when I'm working in situations, to be the composed force in a chaotic situation. I think that to me is, is kind of what centers me. And through that comes this acceptance of risk, right? I noticed when I worked in the corporate arena, there seems to be, gosh, we got to go to these, these, these detailed plans so we can avoid all risk. And I kept saying, no, let's, 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 that's impossible. So what do you think when you hear me say that? Yeah, I agree with you completely. I think risk is an opportunity as well. Yeah. Typically, with uncertainty comes a certain amount of risk, and we have got to be willing to get our minds around what risk really is, Mm -hmm. how we can make ourselves more resilient in the face of it, and then how when risk is there, we can make that calculation of when is the right time to to move and try to take advantage of the opportunity. Yeah, so what made you write this book? Obviously, I mean, I think COVID-19 probably had something to do with it, but, but why now? Why this book right now? Yeah, I'd probably like you coming out of the Marine Corps, you know, you go through this life journey that doesn't stop. And so after I got out of the military, I wrote my memoirs, which is interesting. Yep. And then I wrote Team of Teams, which focused on a particular transformation that I was a part of. And then I was interested in leaders and why leaders, the idea of this stereotypically perfect leader isn't what I've seen. Mm-hmm. And so we studied that. But then I came to risk because both in the military and out of the military, there were always a series of processes to deal with risk, sort of a doctrine around risk. Right. But then when I watched how we actually made decisions, it wasn't aligned with that. <laughs> we really didn't act mathematically, right. and we probably shouldn't have. And in many cases, I don't think we acted very rationally. Mm. And I know I was guilty of that as well. We have trouble communicating the idea of risk. We have trouble with calculating it. And we have trouble with preparing ourselves to be most effective in the face of risk. So what do we do? I mean, I'm, I'm curious to find out. I mean, what are some of the key messages that you want to get conveyed in this book? I mean, you, you talk about 10 risk control factors in the book. There's so much stuff in this book. But what are the key messages you wanted to convey? Yeah, at the beginning, that the central message is the greatest risk to us is us. Yeah, for sure. And they did a a poll some years ago of a number of CEOs, and they asked them what the risk to their corporations were, and they listed a number of things, all external factors. And then they looked at a list of corporations that failed, and most of the failures came from internal problems. Mm. So we have a tendency to think of risks as external things, meteors coming at us, changes in the market, competition, and we fixate on those. But the reality is we usually can't do much about those. And yet, internally, we have the ability to control how vulnerable we are or not. Yeah. And I draw the analogy in the book to the human immune system. 
You know, every day it's estimated that we are attacked by 10,000 threatening pathogens or things which could make us sick or kill us. But we don't think about it because right. we don't have to. Right. Our body detects them. It assesses whether they're dangerous. It responds to them, kills them if necessary, and learns, remembers that. And so this miracle system just cranks along and protects us until it doesn't, when we get autoimmune deficiency or something else, and then we're vulnerable. Our organizations have risk immune systems, which are roughly analogous, and there are a series of the 10 risk control factors you mentioned, pretty predictable things like communication. Do we communicate effectively? Is our narrative correct and are we aligned well on it? Do we have the ability to overcome inertia and act? Can we get timing right? Are we adaptable? And do we have leadership that, that runs it? And so if you think about that as a risk immune system, what it is is the ability to protect us, to detect, assess, respond, and learn in the face of these external threats that we can't really stop, we can only be well prepared for. I love that because it speaks to something that I'm pretty passionate about particularly in terms of, of planning. And, and I know you've talked about this kind of team and te team of teams, but I will, it always drove me crazy. And it still does when I see people uh, approach this kind of mitigation of risk through detailed planning. And what you're talking about here is, is building resistance to this immune system or, or building up your immune system so you can have this resistance, right? I like that approach because I always saw you know, perfect planning is an impossibility, number one. But what I learned in the Marine Corps is that, look, we plan so that we don't plan for perfection. We plan so that we can be prepared for that, that inevitable unforeseen. That's always going to happen, right? And it seems like people say, well, hey, I kind of hate the term. I love it uh, when a plan comes together. I don't like that term because, to me, I look at planning as, as something that's going to prepare me for that engine failure I wasn't I just I'm anticipating an unforeseen event does that make sense I kind of said a lot there but it does made, any of that make sense it makes perfect sense uh, in special operations years ago we started putting together these beautifully orchestrated operations which meant that each member ranger commando would land on the ground and go to here turn left mm -hmm. jump this and you see right. it in movies right. and you see the operation come together perfectly well, I never went on that one. Yeah. <laughs> right. Every operator right. went on here. Stuff started happening early. And so what you're really doing is you're building this ability to respond yes. to constant changes in yeah. problems. Yeah. Like you mentioned in an air crew, I used to be the, the chairman of the safety committee for JetBlue Airlines. Mm -hmm. And when you study aircraft crashes that are, you know, tragically fatal, you expect to find one thing. The, wing, the wing falls mm -hmm. off, and that's the proximate cause. It's never. You, you really find it's a whole bunch of little things. And then can the crew or the larger system respond to those things as they happen? Because that's usually what solves it if, if you get a good outcome. That's a great point. Yeah, it's, it's, always, it's never one major event, like you said, a wing falling off. It's a series of events taken by themselves or inconsequential that link together they lead up to an, a disastrous event, much like the same thing happens in combat, right? And it's having that ability to kind of pull yourself back and recognize that these things are happening and then kind of break the chain, right? I mean, and that, that's what you're talking about. And if we think of the 737 MAX, mm -hmm. there were a series of changes made to the engines of the 737 mm -hmm. 
and then there was an automated system put in. And at the end of the day, all, all of those were issues, but the real problem was they didn't train the crews well enough mm -hmm. to understand what to do if they had issues. Right. And so any one of those fixes might have solved it if they hadn't changed, you know. But if, you, if the crew just was better prepared to be resilient, then you could have had different outcomes. Yeah, I love that approach. It's so refreshing. I, I mean, I'm, it gives me chills even thinking about it because I feel like I'm talking to somebody that finally, <laughs> because I've had so many conversations where people didn't understand that. But so how do we do this? If we know that it's about, look, we're going to be faced with these kind of unnamed dragons. They're going to rear its ugly head when we least expect it. How do we improve and build upon our resistance? How do we build the stronger def defense about the things that we don't know are going to happen, right? How do we build up that defense? All right, Rich, that's the unfair hard question. <laughs> because <laughs> right. if, if you think of our desire, I don't know how many times someone asked me, you know, how do you stay in good health? I say, well, don't smoke, don't drink too much, eat right, work out, get enough sleep. And they go, yeah, yeah, I don't want any of that. I want, what's the secret? <laughs> what's the secret, right? <laughs> Just gave it to you. Um, and so what I'd say is you're asking an organization to strengthen a number of things that feel very basic, but they are, are actually not. Yeah. And strengthen them all the time so that they are prepared for that completely unexpected yep. uh, event that occurs. And it's hard to get corporate leaders to invest in the right things that, that one, give you the, the resilience to do the kind of leader development training that's mm -hmm. needed to run exercises. Mm -hmm. You know, they always talk about running an exercise when it's, you know, blue skies outside and, and everything else is great. It's hard to get people's mind into the snowstorm that's gonna tie things up. Right. Um, and so how do you do that? But that's the real discipline. That's the teams that are best who can make that kind of commitment early and be disciplined enough to do it. Yeah, that's what I mean about doing the work to become the composed force in a chaotic situation. Instead of finding about all these specific checklists and concrete items that's going to, you know, give me the, the laminated binder for each situation that comes up, right, with each scenario, it's impossible. And, and so I'd rather spend my limited time and energy on, first of all, realizing there's always going to be a fire, I don't want there to be a fire, but if I spend my limited time and energy resources on being and teaching my team to be the composed force in a chaotic situation, that's going to give me the competitive edge. You know, there's someone that can, in aviation, we always talk about fighting for the big picture, right? We're always pulling ourselves back because you've probably seen sit on those boards and those accidents, right? The famous one of the Everglades in, in, in Florida in, in the 70s that kind of triggered crew resource management where everybody, you had six, five people focused on a burned out light bulb, a perfectly good airplane, right? And they crashed in the Everglades. It's because they weren't fighting for the big picture. So to me, that's when, you, when you're talking about resilience and building up our immune system, it's the same thing to me. It's like, how do I, how do I train my individuals and myself to always like, well, wait a second, what's going on here? How can I stand on the ledge and look at the whole scene here? I mean, your military train that had, I mean, I can't even imagine at that level when you were in Afghanistan. I mean, that's what you had to do, right? I mean, you had to constantly fight for the big picture. I bet you you were so tempted to insert yourself lower and lower, right? Which all, all through down the chain, that's what everybody's fighting. But I mean, how did you? 
Yeah. How did you prevent? I guess my question is, how much of that training, particularly in Afghanistan, prepared you for what you're talking about here? Yeah, extraordinarily, although I didn't understand it all in the moment. Right. So, for example, in Afghanistan, the problem was that the problem wasn't entirely military in mm -hmm. nature. And so there was an instinct on the part of some soldiers, then we had a number of pundits from the outside saying, what we need to do is take the gloves off, go kick some butt, and we will win this fight. And do whatever it takes, drop more bombs, kill more people. But the problem was completely opposite of that. Yeah. In fact, the more people you killed, even if it was the enemy, created more enemy. Yeah. And the more houses you bombed actually just made the problem worse. So the reality is you have to, as you say, get the big picture. The real picture is the psyche of the Afghan people was going to determine the outcome, as it ultimately did mm -hmm. when they lost confidence. So how do we understand what the real risk is? And so what I told our forces was there is a tactical risk to you if you go into an area and don't use massive firepower because you haven't threatened it and the enemy might still be there. But there's a much greater risk, a strategic risk of losing the war mm -hmm. if we solve this tactical risk. So we are going to have to do what one of the, my officers coined is courageous restraint. We are going to have to take risks to ourselves tactically so strategically we reduce our risk. But that's hard to explain. Oh, my God. Particularly, it's hard to explain to that junior person who's... I can imagine. Yeah, getting shot at. Yeah, and, that, and, and in, again, that's on this, this scale, steroid, steroidal scale, scale that I can't even imagine. But it, it just as I think about the challenges I've faced even in corporate America, that has always been my challenge. And it's like you can never over-communicate enough. It's almost like we, to me particularly as you get higher up in the, in the organization is understanding those risks and be able to communicate that you got to be maniacal about communicating that. I think, I do think that's the number one priority to be quite honest, as you get up high in the organization is this maniacal communication about what we're trying to accomplish and why. And I, and I think people don't realize how difficult that really is, right? That to me, I think yeah. that's the number one difficulty. And I, I do too. Is that what you mean in the book when you talk about risk fit? Is that what we're talking about here? Are we talking about, are we hitting some of the elements of being risk fit? What do you mean by that? Well, what we mean by risk fit is doing those basics well, having the discipline to not only communicate well when in the moment, mm -hmm. but communicate well all the time. Keep that process. Go back to your narrative. Make sure that your narrative actually reflects what you are doing and that people are aligned on it. Go back to your ability to be adaptable. Are we adaptable? Pressure testing yourself. And so it's all the things that a person does to keep themselves fit and the basic things and then work it out so that you have the flexibility needed, you have the strength needed in the way, you have the endurance needed with your lungs. It's all the things that give you the ability to respond. If someone was, for example, to, in an aviation way, come up with a completely unexpected crisis on the aircraft, mm -hmm. something nobody's ever seen before, right. how would that crew and the entire system respond to it? Would they be able to step back and say, okay, what are, what are our possible actions and that sort of thing? Or would they just go, ah, there's no laminated binder for that. <laughs> right. we got what do we do? <laughs> right. Um, that's what 
we believe we have to do. And it's extraordinary how often we don't do that. Yeah. We, we understand the challenge and we don't do that preparation. You know, when you said that, that made me think about, and again, going back to aviation, which I know, and you study these, these mishaps and the ones that were successful and the ones that weren't. The ones that were successful or had a more favorable outcome, it was around that. It was around what, what I would say risk fit in the aviation side was like, look, I know we got all these standards and procedures. We've got all these things, these things you need to know. It's like aviate, navigate, communicate. You've probably heard that before, right? You've probably heard pilots say that. that is, that's the risk fit assessment. No matter what is going on, you better do it in that order. When everything is going to hell in a handbasket, first fly the plane. You know, Make sure that it's blue side up and brown side down and then worry about everything. Else. And, and when you study these mishaps, you see people doing that. They're communicating first, which is kind of a natural reaction in an emergency. I want to talk to somebody and tell them what's happening, even though that does absolutely nothing for, for what's happening inside that, that plane at that moment. You've got to fly the plane. Then you've got to worry about, okay, did I get off course or not? Who cares? Take care of the situation. Then get back on course and then talk to somebody. And to me, that's kind of risk fit. I don't know. What do, what do you think when you hear me say that? Does that kind of fit? fit yeah, your idea? absolutely. Would it be okay if I sort of – Describe my view of COVID nineteen. Yeah, that would be awesome. Because if if you say you've got to do first things first and do them competently, and if we go to COVID nineteen, first the nature of the threat was this was a threat everybody could hate. Nobody could like COVID nineteen. It's a it's an unseen enemy, and so there's no sympathy, and that that makes it easier. Yeah. Um, the second is it wasn't unexpected. We That's get true. coronaviruses all the time. And so this was COVID-19 because it came in 2019. But the reality is it was completely predictable. Right. And we knew what to do about it. We have great knowledge in public health, a lot of practice over previous pandemics. And then finally, we did get a medical miracle. They produced vaccines faster than ever before. So if you line those factors up, you say, how could you possibly get this one wrong? Right. Yet, what happened in the moment, you talk about aviate, navigate, communicate. The first thing we needed to do was make some tough decisions. As soon as it's clear there's a problem, you better do some things. And there was uncertainty, so you don't know exactly what to do, but there are some basics. And then as you start to work through the problem, you clearly have got to bring the nation together and create a clear narrative on what the situation is and what our nation's response is going to be. Are we going to take it seriously? What's our priorities and whatnot? And then you've got to communicate clearly and constantly and do it in a way that is credible so that the next communication is believed. Because our problem is what happened is we let our communication become confusing to people. Yeah. And so you started to get misinformation. We let our narrative drift because are we going to defeat this? Uh, pandemic, or are we going to keep our businesses open and just sort of roll with it? And those are two different courses of action. Yes. And either could be right, but you better have one. And then as we, as we screwed up things one after another, our basic dysfunction made it even worse. If we were in the cockpit, suddenly we're not communicating, we're not navigating, we're not aviating, and we're arguing. And why should we be surprised that the plane crashed? Exactly. Good.
Hey, we're about halfway through the conversation, but I got to talk to you about my brand new sponsor, Awesome Broso Tequila. I got to tell you, this stuff is crazy good. It's easy to sip. It's perfect for gifts. I got the holidays coming up. And when I first tasted this tequila, it absolutely blew my mind. We all have bad memories of tequila, but this stuff is out of this world. I love this company. It's a trusted, family-owned and operated company. They've been creating tequila for many years, but they've perfected this unique time-honored craft, producing what I consider and is considered the best tequila in the world. From their La Rosa Reposado, aged in Bordeaux wine barrels, which creates this really cool pink hue, to their Gran Reserva Ulta Añejo, my favorite, which is aged in new French oak casks. Each tequila is as unique as it is flavorful. Azambroso Tequila is honored to have received many awards throughout the years, notably the prestigious Rob Report's Best of the Best and Top Tequila in the San Francisco World Spirits Competition. Although they have acquired many accolades throughout the years, their customers are what matter the most. Their continuous support and reorders are what motivates the driving force to keep producing the world's best-tasting tequila year after year. You can't go wrong with this stuff. You can find out the complete line of Awesome Broso tequilas on their purchasing site, atequila.com. That's the letter, atequila.com. Use the discount code LEGEND, and you'll receive 10% off your first order. Go check them out. Awesome Broso tequila. Really good stuff. Yeah, well, that, that sums up pretty much the kind of the U.S. leadership. And, and it doesn't get, I guess it kind of gets talked about a little bit, but people are kind of incredulous that we're so divided or they're so they're confused or why so many people haven't taken the vaccine or why it's because we screwed up at the beginning like you said from the communication standpoint we didn't have a consistent message there was a lot of infighting going on it happened during an election year or started anyway during the you know really at the around the election of, of last right didn't it yeah it, what, I mean, it started. started I mean, it started in nineteen, early. but yeah, for total twenty twenty. So we're going in an election year. So politics really yeah. poisoned it, you know, and, and it s- spoke to our dysfunction. Yeah. So, so I guess, and that speaks to a lot about you know on, on the narrative, and to me, I think that is a huge issue, a larger issue that I don't know if we want to explore that. But how much, how concerned are you of, of the power of misinformation and the power of propaganda that, that kind of de- derails this or doesn't let us assess risks accurately? Yeah, we studied this hard and, and to give you the short answer is I think it is the single most important threat to our republic today. I agree. It is the existential threat, the impact of mis and disinformation. We studied in the book, uh, in preparation for this, the American Tobacco Institute, who in the 1950s wanted to protect big tobacco from the fact that it was clear that it was, it was causing cancer. And so instead of saying, no, it doesn't, they ran a campaign that said, it may cause cancer, but we don't know enough. And what they did was they introduced an element of doubt, which, which for people who wanted to smoke, gave them a little bit of daylight to go, yeah, it might cause cancer, but it might not, so I'm okay smoking. Mm-hmm. And they cynically used that for decades. And in fact, I could argue it still in many ways is in play today. And so once that disinformation got out there, we had an entire generations of Americans who kept smoking and dying due to cancer and whatnot because we allowed that to occur. I think that if you look at other impacts of 
you know, I category misinformation is information that's wrong. And sometimes it's in, intentional, sometimes it's not. Disinformation is intentional. Yeah. And the, the problem is we have a lot of ignorance right now in our society, which isn't a crime because ignorance isn't being stupid. It's being uninformed. Right. But when disinformation creates ignorance by giving people an impression that is incorrect and it's done insidiously or irresponsibly, it can take a society into a place that it's very hard to recover from. And so I think it's the single biggest threat we have. I'm not quite sure what the solution is um, because we're going to have to become better consumers of information. Yeah, it's, it's, that, it is overwhelming to think about that. But yeah, because sometimes I think about that. I agree with you. I think it is, a, is the biggest threat. And so when I do get overwhelmed on that, I kind of say, well, what can I do in at least my part of the world, right? I mean, are there, what are those things? What are, for me as an individual, you talk about four tests that leaders can make to make sure that our communication is accurate and we can evaluate it. And, and what measures can the organization as a whole take to ensure that, that what we're relying on is objective and accurate and not, not false or disinformation? What can we do? Yeah, it's uh, if you'd asked me 20 years ago, I would have said the Wikipedia effect, meaning there are so many different sources of information, would auto-correct misinformation, and therefore we would get to greater and greater accuracy. But I was completely wrong. Yeah. That, that has not been the case. Um, I think we are going to have to put in place um, things that test misinformation. They can test it. They go after it and they, they take it on. The problem is once somebody believes something that's wrong, it's really hard to get them off that belief. Mm -hmm. That's a psychological phenomenon, I guess you'd call it. But because we have people who believe ridiculous things right now and you, you challenge them on it, what it does is it actually strengthens their belief. You know, it has that psychological effect, which I think all you can do over time is contest it and then, you know, see where we go. I, it's almost like counter brainwashing. Yeah, it's almost like um, I think there's something in there about seeking to understand. I think it's about, you know, going back to how we were evolved as humans is getting around the campfire again and seeing each other in the eyes. I mean, if, if I was sitting across from you from a table or sitting around a campfire and just kind of shooting the spit with you i mean I, I, I you and i could probably have a, a healthy debate on something we disagree with and then and then crack a beer and and slap each other on the yeah. back afterwards right even though we didn't even come up with a solution or you know yeah. i i think back i've talked about this many times on this show but i think back to when my parents oh they all got married a group of friends there were there were six couples 12 of them and they all got married around the same 1959 1960 and they all played bridge right that's what they did they when they got together and they played bridge and when we were kids growing up they couldn't find a sitter we'd be at the house whoever was hosting the bridge party and so but i, I look back at that group of friends and they've all passed away except one at this moment and i look back at that 50 years of life they did together, 55 years. And there were Nixon Republicans, there were Kennedy Democrats, they were Protestant, they were Jewish, they were Catholic. And they gave each other hell about all of those things. And then they laughed and they loved, right? And so I, I don't know how we get back to that, you know? But 
and it, it's sad that we can get there. But I do think it's seeking to understand and sitting across from each other. And as mm-hmm. and getting getting back to your book, I think we as leaders kind of have this obligation to make sure that at least what we're doing is objective and accurate, right? I mean, that, that's the best that we can do and, and change and, our world. And I think, yeah, and we've got to force our organizations because we can't just, you know, uh, do a lot of hand-wrenching and saying, you know, I'm sorry that it's this way, but it is this way. I think we can force organizations to interaction. We can force communication, even though it's painful. We can bring people into the same room. We can start young. You know, I'm a great believer in national service for young Americans. One of the reasons is if you put people from different zip codes, different cultural backgrounds together, typically over time, you start to develop at least a grudging respect for them and an an empathy for their perspective. Mm -hmm. Uh, But when you don't know anybody, all you know in them is at a distance, they're those people and they're just wrong. It's easy to hate. Yeah. Well, and that gets to the point of, like organizations. And I think they treat, I think they treat diversity and bias the wrong way too. You talk about it in your book and I love the way that you approach it. And I think back to even like of the great leaders, I think about Lincoln, like what he did with his cabinet, right? I mean, you talk about a diverse and and unbiased approach, right? I mean, for the most part, for the times, I mean, he didn't, he didn't bring sycophants into his cabinet. (laughs) He brought people that didn't like him. You know, and and I think that attributed to a lot of the success. I mean, would you agree with that? You're a better student of history than me, but no, I, I would absolutely agree. And I agree with you. We think about diversity wrong. We think about gender and age yeah. and mm-hmm. things like that. You really need diversity of perspective. Exactly. And we, in the book, we look at the Cuban Missile Crisis. Mm-hmm. Uh, first, there was the Bay of Pigs when Kennedy had a bunch of old white guys got together and they screwed it up. Right. Then for the Cuban Missile Crisis, he got a bunch of old white guys together, but they weren't the same old white guys. Nope. What he did was he got people who he knew had different perspectives. Right. And so he achieved diversity and he used some process to reinforce that. And the key thing was he challenged their thinking and his thinking. And he he avoided groupthink, which had been a problem from the Cuban Missile Crisis. So... I don't think we should put a woman on the board and say, solve the problem. (laughs) You know, there are a lot of women who went to Ivy League business school. They go into corporate and they're the same as the male sitting next to them. Exactly. Unless we get a different, real difference in perspective. Yeah, that's what I really appreciate about you writing the book is that diversity perspective. You're right. Everybody kind of goes to the kind of identity stuff. And that example of of the Bay of Pigs to the Cuban Missile Crisis and how Kennedy changed, that is one of the great examples of learning from your mistakes, I think, at least from a political perspective, leadership perspective. That is one of the great examples. You're right. Groupthink versus having a a diversity perspective. Yeah, I love that. Can we teach people to be resilient, do you think? It's kind of like one of those things I always – and I think back to all my training and I think about, it's kind of like curiosity to me. Can I teach somebody to be curious? Can I teach somebody to be resilient? I guess my thought is it's in all of us. It just needs to be unleashed. What are your, what are your thoughts? I, I think some people are going to more, be more talented naturally than sure. others, but the reality is I think you can. If you teach people how to do certain things in the military, run a battle drill, do a, uh, a very set procedure, you can train them to be competent in that. I think we've got to train people in problem solving, which mm-hmm. means creating situations of uncertainty, creating problems that can't be solved. And 
and make them do that. And I think that the more you do that, the more confident you get in your ability to respond to changes. And so I think we can, now again, some people will take it easier, but I think you can train individuals and organizations to be better. Yeah, I was thinking back, I just, you made me think about when I was in officer candidate school, they put us in the situation, that was like some of the, the best training when they were evaluating us if we were going to be Marine Corps officers. They'd put us in those impossible situations and, and it wasn't, they didn't care if you had the solution, they wanted to see how you brought everybody together and incorporated everything. So you, it wasn't a pass-fail if you solved the problem. They could be solved, but they were very difficult to solve, right? And, exactly. Uh, yeah, I love that. What Going back to that COVID-19, I'm curious. So in, in your, if you could wave a realistic magic wand, I mean, what, what were the type of leader, what type of leadership did we need for that to go like you talked about there a few minutes ago? What, what, what would you yeah. like to see? And, and interesting enough, because COVID hit across the U.S. and the world, we have a bunch of different examples essentially against the same problem. And I think the places that came out best, probably the, the most effective has been Jacinda Ardern of New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Now, she's got a unique island nation with a limited population. But what she did at the very beginning was she said, I'm going to be absolutely candid with you. And she did very forthright communication on an aggressive level. The second is she outlined the process for their responses, what they were going to do. They were going to try to defeat COVID by keeping it out. And they were going to be very disciplined. They were going to make tough decisions. So if you look at leaders that communicate candidly and constantly and in a way that uh, communicates a clear plan and those that are also willing to make decisions Mm. and sometimes those decisions are going to be unpopular or difficult but make them and stick to them now you can change if conditions change dramatically but don't change just because political winds blow a little bit and and uh, make it hard those are the leaders i think that have proven best here now unfortunately we've seen a number of leaders across the united states who instead have put up their fingers waiting to see which way the wind is blowing and they've tried to get in front of it and my fear is at the end of this crisis they are going to spike the football and claim success yeah yeah and we'll point at the numbers and we'll say no you weren't successful and they go i was other factors actually we were and we're at this weird time in history when you can literally say white is black and you can, to a degree, get away with it. Yeah, it is, it is weird. This lack of accountability that seems to be kind of uh, what everything's pointing to. And even, for example, going back, what I wish would have seen it. To me, it's, you take it the very beginning when, when there was this communication uh, confusion about are masks effective or not? You had Fauci out there saying, don't wear masks, they're not effective. And then he admitted later, he's like, well, I said that because there was a shortage of masks. And I'm like, whoa, do you realize how much, I mean, that planted the seeds of like, I can't, I mean, you and I know from an integrity standpoint, if you would have done something like that in Afghanistan, like if you would have, that's disinformation, right? If you knew that, you know, if you intentionally, because I wanted to protect you from or protect the country. That, I just don't buy that. I don't buy that at all. And that, I think that did more damage than, than any good that, it, that he was hoping. I think it did. Yeah. You know, we say we're not going to cause 
the nation to do things which are counterproductive or panic, and so we're going to use disinformation. Again, it, it corrodes your credibility, and the next time you cry wolf, nobody believes you. Well, and it's kind of even the thing that really upset me, too, when we're talking about risk mitigation, communication, or accurate communication. I think if, like, when this whole thing happened a month ago, when Afghanistan had gone, started going south, I think if the president would have came out and said, honestly, if he would just said, look, this uh, surprised me here. Um, this this went a little, I wasn't expecting this. So therefore, I'm going to put some more guys in and we're going to focus on this and getting our people out. I think people would have been, he would have sounded like a hero. But instead, it just made it, in my opinion, worse. And I know that's probably real close to you. And I didn't mean to talk about Afghanistan on this thing. But, but just from a communication standpoint, I don't understand why leaders don't do that in those moments. Just be candid and accountable. Like, man, I, okay, I, I made a bad decision here, I'm, and here's how I'm going to try to fix it, you know, and, and be forthright and forceful. I think people would rally behind him. That, that's my thought. Well, I think you're right. And I'm fine to go to Afghanistan because if you look at Afghanistan and you say, well, why did it collapse so suddenly? They had a military of 300,000 people, problems with it and whatnot. But I think it was a crisis of confidence. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, it was a lack of confidence on their, on the Afghans' part that they could solve the problem. Yeah. And so they, they believed that their government was corrupt and ineffective. They believed that necessary things they need, support from the United States, logistics and air power and whatnot, weren't there. And so it corroded their ability to be confident that we can stand, we can do this. And of course, the, the Taliban were masterful at doing an information Care mm-hmm. campaign across the country, reinforcing that. So their risk immune system became completely compromised. That's right. The Afghans. And so it just collapsed. And so I think that it really reminds us that it's not the magnitude of the threat, it's the vulnerabilities we allow. Because there are only 70,000 Taliban. Yeah, it's a so great, mathematically, yeah, it's a great point. You know, it's funny. Right before this conversation, as we speak, um, they're having, they're talking to to Millie and to McKinsey, and uh, I forget the uh, yeah. defense. What his name? I forget his name. But Lloyd Austin. Lloyd Austin and McKinsey uh, said pretty much what you just said right there when they were asking him. They said, "Look, I mean, it, it, they lost their will to fight when you know our." And we, and he said he communicated this, that when we pulled out, I mean, the lack of, I mean, what that message that sent to the Afghanistan, you know, and that, hey, well, we're not going to have this air support. We're going to, we're really moving, we're really leaving now, you know, and right. it, it, it was, it shouldn't have been a surprise. So it was interesting hearing those guys talk about that today. What, so what do you hope? I mean, this book, I asked you, before we started recording, what did you want to make sure we got across? And you said, why? I want people to understand why are we getting this wrong? So have we hit upon that? Why are we getting this so wrong, do you think? Yeah. I think it's because we keep looking for something else to blame it on. Yeah. And the reality is the greatest risk to us is us, us. which means solution lies with us, which that's the good news because we have it within our power to make ourselves less vulnerable. But we aren't willing to do that. We, we want to say that, you know, it's external risks that we either couldn't or shouldn't have been able to predict. And therefore, that gives us a, an excuse for, for not being as resilient as we need to be. 
Yeah, I love that message that, first of all, we're our own worst enemy. It's up to us. That's the good news. We have the ability to kind of improve the resiliency of our immune system, as you put it. What do you mean by be holistic, though, as you talk about in the book? You know, rely, it's the system. Make it work. What does that mean? Yeah, we have a tendency, or most people do, to work one or two muscles in your body that you like to work and not work others. And to have certain real weaknesses, like if a leader is very decisive and very charismatic and very this, but dishonest, yeah. then you got a real problem. <laughs> you know, you've, you've got a hole in the boat. And so when I say holistic, what I mean is all of those risk control factors don't have to be operating perfectly. They right. never will be. Right. But you can't have holes in the boat. Right. Yeah, I love that. I love that perspective. That's so true. And then I think what I really, as we kind of sum up here, what I love about your work, Stan, is that um, – this is easy to understand. When I read this book, it's like, yes, of course, it's easy to understand. But it doesn't mean it's easy. It's, it's right. I mean, it isn't complex, but it's hard, right? It doesn't. And, and, and I love how you kind of end with that, right? I mean, that's what we got to walk away with. It, that this is, it's, it's easy to understand. But that's leadership in a nutshell, isn't it? I mean, leadership concepts are very easy to understand. But it takes right. it, it, it's difficulty and to me because I think it takes a tremendous amount of authenticity, transparency, and vulnerability. Things that we kind of suck at as human beings, I think. Right? And and, <laughs> and I think I think if we can embrace that, I think to your point, we can start to build those blocks of resilience and, and get and get the teams focused on leadership and communication and action and all that. I mean, what what do you think? Does that resonate with you? You nailed it. Yeah. Yeah, you nailed it perfectly. I love what you're doing, and I think the book is great. Risk, a user's guide, uh, written by uh, General Stanley McChrystal. And Anna, how do you say her last name? Anna Patrico. Patrico, yeah. What about her? She seems like she's she's amazing. She's a a, uh, young lady, graduated from Vanderbilt, and then joined McChrystal Group and was working here a couple years. And then when we were going to write another book, I was looking for a young person to, to be on the team, and so she became my partner. She has just worked herself incredibly and developed this extraordinary expertise now in risk. Even though I've got more life experience, she has really added to That's you know, awesome. the experience studying. And it's fun because she's from a big Italian family in New Jersey. <laughs> so, you know, one day I said, wow, Anna, I wonder if the book will be a bestseller. She goes, oh, yeah, just my family. We'll be good. <laughs> That's awesome. Stan, how can people learn more about you, connect with you, uh, learn more about the book? What are the best ways to people to reach out? Yeah, the, the best is McChrystal Group is an entity that's in Alexandria, Virginia, but spread. We have an office in London as well. And if you go to McChrystalGroup.com, there's a number of tools there available and things, services we can provide as well, plus additional speeches and things like that, that and materials that they might find very interesting. I love it. I'll have links to all that in the show notes. Uh, Stan, this has been such an honor to, to get to know you and have you on the show. Such a fun conversation. I could talk to you for hours about this stuff, but I hope, did we talk about everything that we wanted to talk about here in the short time that we had together? We sure did, Rich. You are perfect. I love it. Stan, thanks for coming on the show, and hopefully we'll do this again sometime in the future. Thank you, my friend. Take care. Hey, thanks so much for tuning into the show. I hope you got some value out of this episode. If you did, please do me a huge favor. Tell somebody about this show. Tell your spouse, tell your kids, tell your coworkers. Let them know about the value that those leadership brings to your world. 
Go to DoseOfLeadership.com. You can learn more about my services. If you're looking for somebody to speak, teach, or coach about leadership, I'm your guy. I'm known for my ability to transform individuals and organizations, teaching them the concept of creating a culture of decentralized leadership. I do think that is the secret sauce to facing all the challenges that we face today. Thanks so much for tuning into the show. I look forward to the next time we're together. And until the meantime, make it a great one.